you need to prepare before you set foot on the field. Mm -hmm. And good negotiators know to do preparation work. Mm -hmm. What is it that you want? What is it the other side might want? What things could you trade off that might be low value to you, higher value to the other side of the table? This is what we need to do when we prepare. And even a little preparation, even as little as half an hour, can really help you be better prepared and improve your negotiation outcomes. Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. I send you greetings and salutations. I am so thrilled that you have chosen to listen to my podcast. Today, I'm drilling down a little bit differently than I have in the past. You know, we always talk about the gap from where you are now to where you want to be. And what are the small steps that you need to take consistently over time to get where you want to go? Well, one of the issues that comes up repeatedly in the comments I get back from you, thank you very much for sending them, as well as what people tell me when I meet them on the street and they talk about the podcast and what they hear, et cetera, is no one really helps them understand where do they learn how to do this one thing. And that is navigate a career, making the decisions that you're building the skills along the way to be a good leader, whether you have the title and the role and the authority to be a leader, or your interests turn into something like you want to be a project manager or in the office of project management, or you just want to be a great contributor and you want to have a long, impactful career where you're paid appropriately for the skills that you deliver in your workplace. That is the crux of what a lot of people are thinking about today. And my guest today, Mark Hirschberg, is the author of the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. He has an interesting background, so I'm I'm kind of reading this. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500 companies and in academia. And we have to go back to how in the world did you get from tracking criminals and terrorists to academia? Okay. And talking about careers. Okay. Anyway, he helped to start the undergraduate practice opportunities program dubbed MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he teaches annually. At MIT, he received a BS in physics, a BS in electrical engineering and computer science, and a master's of engineering in electrical engineering and computer science focused on cryptography. At Harvard, Mark helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. He also works with many nonprofits, including Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corals. This is the most interesting thing I've had about a guest. He is one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers in the country and now lives in New York where he is known for his social gatherings, including an annual Halloween party, as well as his diverse cufflink 
collection. So before I, I let Mark say anything, you know how I feel about you have to have work-life integration. Well, hopefully today we're going to talk a little bit about how you achieve that, because that's one of the questions people ask me all the time. How can I work all the time and still have a wonderful life? And Mark is a role model at doing this. And role models teach us what we need to do. And with that, hello, Mark. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you for the kind introduction. I'm excited to be here. Oh, kind. You earned every minute of it, especially the ballroom dancing thing. So, <laughs> so before I get to your personal life and your fun stuff, the things that probably give you joy, I have to ask, this thing about tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web, how did you, I mean, how does that fit into your life now in primarily academia? Am I right? Uh, it's a combination. And I'm lucky that everything I do brings me joy. I love my career. I love my work. So it's not, well, I do this to get to the fun stuff. I have straddled both academia and industry. So I'll give a little bit of my origin story and then talk about how the terrorism and dark web fits in. When I began my career, I was a software engineer back in the 90s, and I knew I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. I looked and said, what does a CTO do? What are the skills I would need to be successful in that role? And I realized it wasn't just being a great engineer. Yes, I had to have those skills, but it involved leadership, hiring, communicating, negotiating, a whole bunch of skills no one ever taught me. So I had to develop that in myself. And along the way, I became a CTO. I've done a lot of cybersecurity companies. And while most of them are trying to protect information, how we get you better passwords, in some cases, in this one case, it was more intelligence gathering, finding out what the cyber criminals and terrorists are doing by gathering information on the web. Now, as I built up these skills in myself, I realized they're not just for executives. They are for everyone, down to the most junior person. So I wanted to train up my team. And as I began to do so, I heard MIT was doing something similar. MIT had done surveys of companies who hire our students. And these surveys, the company said, we want to see these skills in the people we hire, leadership, team building, communication, negotiating, not just in the students from MIT, in everyone we hire from everywhere at all levels, and we can't find these skills. So MIT wanted to put together a program to help instill these skills in our students. When I heard about that, I said, you know, I've been developing these skills in my team. Can I be helpful? Here's some content I have. So yeah, please come help us. And I helped create the initial content. And now I've been teaching there for the past 20 years. So I have my primary career where I am a CTO and I help Fortune 500s and startups develop new innovative software solutions. But then I also have almost my side gig of 20 years teaching at MIT and elsewhere. And now, of course, the book and the speaking and other things I do with it. That, that is what I would call a perfect example of in, a totally integrated life where you were very thoughtful about what you wanted to do, where you wanted to go. And opportunity, as opportunities came to you, you were able to evaluate them and say, does it fit? Does it not fit? Ooh, this one is, looks juicy and then go right after it. So let's, let's start with really kind of the basics in this conversation, because I think too often, particularly what I've noticed previously is people give very high level tips and kind of, oh, just do these five or six things. But we don't really ask some really basic questions like, you know, what really is a career plan? Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head of you have to be intentional with what you're doing. 
imagine if your CEO came to you and said, listen, this is a major project, really critical, make or break the company for the next two years. I need you to work on this. Say, okay, got it. This will be my number one priority. So listen, I'm not going to bother with a budget. We're not going to make a career plan, a project plan, a timeline. We're just going to wing this whole thing and I'll see you in two years and let's see if we make it. No way would the CEO accept that. Mm -hmm. And yet, when it comes to our careers, that's exactly what we do. Not just for two years, but for five or 10 years, we say, yeah, I'm just going to wing it. I'm going to cross my fingers and hope we get there. We know how to do project plans. We have to do that in our careers. We have to say, this is where we need to be. Let's backtrack. What do we need to do to get there? And we have plans. We have timelines. Now, what trips people up is they say, how am I going to know where I'm going to be in five years? I barely know what I'm doing next week. (laughs) I can't plan five years ahead. Well, just like our project plans, we know that first, it's a little more concrete earlier on. If you have that two-year plan, you know what you're doing this month. You have some placeholders, what you're doing three, four quarters out. Mm -hmm. It's a little fuzzier. You'll figure it out as you get there. Second, you also know you're not going to follow that plan to the letter. Mm -hmm. It is going to change. And that's okay. Don't feel, I made my career plan, now I have to stick to it. You can change, you can adjust, you can adapt. I wasn't planning to teach at MIT, but when I heard about this opportunity, I said, oh, let me explore it. And oh, here's something interesting. Has this fit into my plan? In fact, I even changed my plan. We know our project plans change. We hate that, right? I've been working six months in this direction. Oh, we have to shift. That's life. This is your plan. And if you want to shift it, you totally can. So recognize that we need a plan, but that plan can be flexible. Several of my clients have been asking the question, they're in leadership positions, et cetera, and they're moving up in the organization. And I always say every level, new devil out of it, and it shifts and it changes. And oftentimes when we're making those early career moves, a lot of what we do is dependent on our expertise, having a deep expertise so that we can be the leader, the thought leader over the work. But as you move up the organization, that's not what I find is true anymore. And it's almost like you have to release and think about it very differently. I noticed in your book that you talk about in some of the chapters in terms of leadership, not really starting out to be a manager or not thinking you're going to be a leader. It's kind of like the analogy you gave about the plan. How does one figure out this idea of leadership then? You hit a very interesting point there, and this trips most people up, especially in that first level manager role. Mm -hmm. Because when we start out, first day on the job, say out of college, you can do one type of task. And if you do it well, you become more senior and you do a bigger version of that task and more and more until finally you are a very senior individual contributor Mm -hmm. and you now solve the biggest of the problems that you work on. Maybe you have some project management work, you're seen kind of as a leader, but it's not official. You're not necessarily hiring and firing people. You might help with the plan, but you're not responsible for the plan. So Mm -hmm. you've done the same task, just bigger and bigger for years. All of a sudden, when you become a manager, that first level manager, that's the hardest step to make because now suddenly it's not about you solving the same problem, just bigger, but you doing a whole bunch of new tasks hiring people, managing people, motivating people, budgets and planning. And these are things you never did before. And you go from the I to the we. It's no longer you need to solve this problem. That's why we hired you. Mm -hmm. It's 
you're here to get your team to solve the problem, that we solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And so that trips a lot of people up. And then, as you note, as we get further up in our careers, the ratio of how technical we are, how much we're working on the problem itself versus the meta problems of the people and teams, Mm -hmm. it shifts. But a mistake a lot of people make, and this goes to your question, is they think, well, I'm not going to be a leader or a manager until, right. until I have this title, until I'm at this level. But in fact, leadership and project management skills, they apply to all of us. Mm-hmm. Even the most junior people, you can utilize leadership and management skills and companies want you to do this. That brings up a whole lot of questions in my head. So let me kind of layer it down. I haven't really thought about, you know, I'm in this scenario of I really haven't thought about being a leader, et cetera. I now get, I'm in this role where I've got all these tasks that I'm responsible for, but I never did it. And and I've only seen it done, you know, after my boss would do it, then they kind of come and say, here's where we're at. And then I had to add on to it, but I didn't really have to start with a, a blank piece of paper, right? I'm caught in this position now. And I noticed one of the things you talked about is peer-to-peer learning groups. Talk about that and, and how, you know, I'm now caught where I really don't know what I'm doing. How do I exercise that? Because I don't think people know, you know, for me, peer-to-peer learning and networking are kind of linked and we never really learn how to network. No, we don't. But let's think about what you brought up with, you show up to a job and you haven't really been trained. Imagine if you said to your 16-year-old kid, congratulations, you're 16, you're ready to drive. You've been in the car before, right? You've seen me drive. So here you go. Here are the keys. Try not to hit anyone. Mm -hmm. Completely unacceptable, but that's what we do to many people we promote. Oh, you've seen this job done. You were in the back seat before. So here are the keys to the manager's office. Good luck. Try not to hit anyone. Yes. Or we say, oh, you know what? We are much better we're going to send you to this two-day training program. Okay, great. Yeah, you know, we're not sending you in cold. Well, now imagine if you said, oh, we're recruiting for a basketball team. Welcome, join our team. So listen, I'm going to send you to a two-day basketball clinic. Oh, welcome back for those two days. Great, you learned a lot. Yeah, we're not going to practice. We're not going to drill. We're not going to scrimmage. You had two days of training. What more do you need? Yeah, yeah. We know that's insane. The problem is we have typically learned content. When you think about what you've learned in school, it is a knowledge transfer. Here is the formula. Here's how you fill out the expense report. I just tell you this knowledge, you go, okay, got it. When do you fill out expense reports? When do you need that knowledge? Very clear when there's one in front of you. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you don't think about it. So it's obvious when and how we use that knowledge. But no one says, listen, at 317 next Wednesday, you need to lead and use this formula for leadership. It's not that cut and dry. So the way we need to learn these skills, what some people call soft skills, all these professional skills, peer learning is a great way to do it. Because first, we need this to be continuous. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is create a group of people. I recommend groups of about six to eight people. There are ways you can scale it up if you want to do larger groups. And you get together, you take some content. Yes, you can use my book. But if you don't want to use my book, use another book, use some articles online, use a great podcast like this one. You listen to an episode, you read some pages, then you all come together and discuss it because it's in that discussion. You say, oh, well, we're talking about leadership. We just heard this great episode on leadership. What did you think? And I'm going to say, you know, here's what I took away and you're going to take away something different. I'm going to say, wow, I didn't even think of it that way. Someone's going to say, you know, I have a leadership challenge. I'm thinking of approaching it this way. 
Do you have any feedback? So I'll also say, well, here's what I tried and here's what worked and what didn't. And this is how we learn because again, there's no, here's the three steps to be a leader. Right. It's all context specific. And it's in that discussion, that's how we learn. This, by the way, is how we teach at MIT. This is how top business schools teach it. Mm-hmm. And here's the great thing. If you do this at your organization, you are not only upskilling everyone, not just yourself, you are fostering your internal network. You're getting to know this group of people you're meeting with. You are creating better employee engagement, and you are also creating a common language. Because if we've all read the same book, Mm -hmm. we can refer to the analogy, the story, the reference in that book. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Mm -hmm. This costs you nothing. You can Mm -hmm. use free content or at most you buy a book, but it can upskill your entire organization is a great way to learn. And on my website, and I will give the URL later, there is a free download on the resources page. The very first download is how you can create this program completely free to download and implement because I want not just you, but your whole team to develop this way. Interesting. So I almost hear, and to correct me if I'm wrong, that it really isn't about peer-to-peer in terms of all everyone on the same role or level. So all managers doing it, but it's something that you as a leader, because we're, you know, now we're kind of figuring out how do we create connections? And that's the underlying thing that you're talking about. Work doesn't happen because we have the expertise. Work happens because we're able to have a relationship that's reasonably trusting and we can share ideas. And so this is a, this peer-to-peer learning becomes a platform that allows people to get to know each other in a non-threatening way and share these ideas. And so what I'm almost hearing is, is that this is a tool, not just for like new managers, but this potentially could be something that a leader says, hey, once a month, we're going to spend 30 minutes on this particular topic and allow people to get to know each other, to learn how to constructively argue or have conflict. I know we don't like to talk about that, but at least debate and share ideas. Is that part of this peer-to-peer networking group that you're talking about? That's exactly right. And in fact, If I was to run this with my group, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say, okay, all my engineers, I want you to go together into your little groups. I don't want just the engineers talking to other engineers. You want to make a group where we have someone from engineering, someone from sales, someone from accounting, someone from CSR. You want people with different perspectives, different backgrounds. Now, I do recommend you try to keep people at about the same level. If you have a senior vice president and then someone who's a junior associate, the dynamics within that group can be a little tricky. So you want to be roughly similar levels within that one group. So you don't have any seniority or dominance issues, but you do want diversity of ideas and experiences. And if, by the way, you're at a small company, you say, we only have 10 people in my company. We have to have the senior people and junior people together. Well, you can do a couple of things. First, find other small companies and say, how about one from our company, your company, her company, his company, and we're just going to do this and create these little groups cross company. Mm -hmm. Or if you don't even have other companies you can do that with, or your company says, we don't want to do this, create a local meetup group, create some type of organization outside of your company and just learn with others. But the whole idea is that you get this diversity of perspectives. Mm -hmm. Because again, someone in a book on a podcast saying, well, here's what you need to do. Here's the secret to doing it. As you brought up earlier, okay, I 
get that in theory, but how does the rubber meet the road? And it's by hearing all these different experiences that we start to really understand it at a deeper level. Yeah, yeah. It, one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that there's a, you know, there's kind of this, there's this chapter on management and process, the process of managing people in general. And I think in, in my work with folks, one of the hardest things for companies to embrace is they, you know, they say they want diverse thoughts. They want people to be able to communicate different ideas. And we want to have that because they intellectually, we do understand that people who come from different backgrounds, people who have different disciplines, add a richness, and they see things in the process of managing or the business process that other people may not see. And so intellectually, we do know that as a good idea. But in practice, it's pretty difficult because, as you say in your book, it's really about this thing about communication and reflection and learning and how to run effective meetings. And I think too many of us want to have total control over the meeting. Oh, we only have an hour. We have to stay in the hour. How do we not avoid those kinds of things? In your book or in your work at MIT, do you have a couple tips that help people understand how to improve team communication, this idea of reflection and learning, which in, in my, the way I do it is I ask people, what have you failed at? Because if we can get past that ego of I have to look perfect, it kind of generates conversation. But what do you do to help your students or help other managers or leaders learn these skills and then walk the talk? Certainly it is through these types of exercises where we do come together and have this discussion. At MIT, we actually do role-playing exercises. Mm -hmm. And I talk about one of the things you can do in these peer learning groups. It doesn't just have to be, we're going to read these pages. You can do actual case studies. You can do the corporate learning games. You can either yourself bring it in, or maybe you do bring in an outside person to facilitate that. So for example, negotiation case studies, that's a great way to learn how to negotiate. Say, here's the situation, and you and I are going to do this negotiation role play, and we're going to try. And we negotiate for 45 minutes, and then we come back together and realize, wow, you took me to the cleaners. I thought I was doing well, and boy, I did not. So let's understand what it is you did, what I could have done better, what other groups do, what other people in my role do that I can learn from. So you can practice and do this. But very importantly, it comes back to just having that plan and being honest. If you have that project plan, thinking about not your career, but just a project we do at work, you say, okay, here's where we need to be in six months. Let's understand we don't yet have a vendor for this mm -hmm. piece. Or we have a risk here that we have a vendor, but if that vendor doesn't deliver by this date, we're in big trouble. We know how to do this, but with our careers, we don't. And we need to say, if I'm trying to be here in six years, where's the gap? Yeah. What are the skills I don't yet have? Just like when I began my career, I said, well, I'm a decent engineer. I could still stand to get better, but I know nothing about leadership. That is a huge gap. I'm going to have to address that. Mm -hmm. What's mm -hmm. the risk, mm -hmm. right? And so by doing that type of reflection, saying, here's where I am, here's where I'm going to be, and what is that gap? And if you're not sure what the gap is, ask others for feedback, Yeah, and then you can make a plan to fill in that gap. Yeah. You, I want to pick up where you started out in terms of negotiation, because negotiating, whether it's negotiating budgets, which people don't understand that that's part of the budgeting process, it's negotiating that. But 
It's also about negotiating job offers. And with this now, you know, the conversation of the great resignation or the great resetting of the workplace, whatever you want to call it, employees and people who are working are now rethinking what it means to go to work. And so they're asking for different things. And I had a conversation with a woman this morning, African-American woman, who's now going into that C-suite and her gut didn't feel really good about going into it. So as we talked through it, we figured out that what was happening is, is there's also this thing of we want women and we want minorities in these senior positions. And the role was just not a good role. It was a minimized role where what they said they wanted her to do didn't have the resources, the connections, the ability to negotiate, communicate, build these collaborative relationships. It wasn't anything. Current job, she had doing the same thing, had 28 people, nationwide company, going to a company that's 10 times the size. And they, she was told, well, you're only going to get one, maybe two people. That's an impossible job to do to have the same kind of impact. And so she was feeling like, you know, they're going to throw a lot of money out, et cetera. But in your book, you talk about it's not just about negotiating money, but it's also negotiating the conditions by which you can succeed. And I don't think anybody really talked about I can I can go for terms of what employment really looks like. How do you teach that to people? And, and what did, what have you learned about it? It's first just as simple as getting that mindset shift that you're not just negotiating money. Mm-hmm. It's not just your salary, maybe bonus, maybe equity. Yes, negotiate those things. They're important. But it's more than that. I know someone in finance, she used to negotiate headcount. She was less concerned about her actual salary. Most of it was going to be bonus anyway, but she knew if she had more money for headcount, her team could deliver more and that would be reflected in her bonus. In one of my jobs about 10 years ago, I was getting hired to be a CTO. Now, at the time I was trying to shift, I was doing more business work. I'm a CTO. I manage engineers and product and data science. But I was spending a lot of time on the business side that wasn't reflected in my titles. I said, I really want my next job to start to show me as having expanded responsibilities. I negotiated that my title would be not simply CTO, but CTO and GM. Mm -hmm. And I would be general manager of a new line of business that we were going to start up. Mm -hmm. We didn't know exactly which line of business it would be. And I was okay with that. But I said, this is what I want. It wasn't, oh, and I need more money. In fact, I would do the extra work for the same money, but that would help my career in the long run. Mm -hmm. So it's just recognizing there's more than one thing, more than just money we can negotiate. And then, of course, using standard negotiation tactics to get to the solution that you want. What are some of the tactics in negotiating? The most important thing, and here's what people miss. I'm going to use a sports analogy again. Okay. When we turn on the TV and we watch the football game, Mm-hmm. So, okay, here we go. And they're announcing the players coming onto the field. And for three hours, we watch them play. Mm-hmm. Great. Turn off the TV, done. Those players are not done. We might see them for three hours a week, but they're doing a lot more work. Mm-hmm. They are scrimmaging, practicing, drilling, training. They're watching the videotape of the other team. They're coming up with the strategy for the game that week. Too many of us just walk onto the field. Oh, okay. I'm about to negotiate my job with you. Hi. Hey, good to see you. So uh, listen, I, I, I want more money. Can, can you give me, I don't know, 20,000 more? And we just wing it yeah. like so many other things we do. You need to prepare before you set foot on the field. Mm-hmm. And good negotiators know to do preparation work. 
-hmm. What is it that you want? What is it the other side might want? What things could you trade off that might be low value to you, higher value to the other side of the table? This is what we need to do when we prepare. And even a little preparation, even as little as half an hour, can really help you be better prepared and improve your negotiation outcomes. I think for me, what I got hooked on mentally and just kind of went off on is your is this word you've used a couple of times, and that's mindset. And one of the things I learned up front is the first mindset you have to have in negotiation is you need to be able to walk away. And if you if if you want the job more than walking away, then you're already in a one down position because Absolutely. you're at their mercy. There is a term called BATNA, B-A-T-N-A, best alternative to negotiate agreement. Mm -hmm. I might want to buy a used car, but I don't want to spend more than $3,000 on it. And if it costs more than that, well, I could keep taking the subway. I'm not totally stuck with no way to get to my job. Mm -hmm. So that's my BATNA, my walk away price. If I can't do less than $3,000, it's not worth it to me. So before we go in, one of the things we do in our prep is understand what is the BATNA. For this woman you mentioned, the BATNA might be, if I can't have at least this much impact, I'm sure there's some minimum salary as well, but if I can't have at least this much impact, maybe I shouldn't go there because I can stay at my current job or I believe I will find another job within a reasonable time. So understanding that lets us not fall into the trap of, oh my God, I have to take this. Mm -hmm. We can also think about how we can improve our BATNA. I really want this job with you. The money's, yeah, it's a little low. I'm hoping I can get you higher, but I'm not working right now. So I'm feeling maybe a little desperate. But if I can get another job offer, I think, okay, I'm not so desperate. I'm not saying, how am I going to pay rent next month? I do have that other job. So now my bottom line, that baseline is the other job. Mm -hmm. So if you can at least be better than the other job, and that's a combination of salary and other benefits and just the overall experience and enjoyment of the job, you can't beat that. Okay, I've got another option. So one of the things we can do is try to improve our BATNA potentially by getting other options on the table for us. Yeah, yeah. That, and, and I think that's a, that's one of the things people don't do. Like you were saying, it's really about putting it out as a plan, knowing that there's some steps in between that you need to go into and you need to be ready to take. So even in these smaller things like negotiating a salary and how am I going to negotiate a salary and how is my job search going? How is it that I'm moving inside the inside my company? Because I, one of the things when I'm working with executives is they don't always think about nego- career planning inside the company they're in, they're in. It's always about, oh, it's about the next job outside of it. But there's a lot of negotiations that go inside, go on inside of the company. And that's, I want to kind of pull down to the last chapter of your book, which is about ethics. There's a lot of free-willing advice fake it till you make it. I know, right? <laughs> you all can't see we're on Zoom and I can see his face. It's priceless. Uh, <laughs> you know, just act like you know what you're doing. Never let them see you emotional or cry. You know, women are often told you're too emotional. Don't, you know, don't don't show your emotions. And, and in one case, it's that person's passion is deemed by another person that you're, you know, being too emotional about it. And so we begin to pull back on this idea of what it means to show up at work. And particularly from an ethical point of view, as I read more about the this chapter, it you're not really talking just about the, should I steal? Should I lie? Should I, 
you know, misrepresent the product or the company. I think what you're talking about is that having a clear sense of who you are, what are your values and how you're going to show up in these other things like negotiations, like budgeting, like networking is really part of your ethical stance or your your realm of ethics. Did I get it right? And if I did, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because you you don't go for the cheap, quick quotes. The part of ethics of don't steal is pretty black and white. Mm-hmm. The part that says sexual harassment is wrong, it's pretty black and white. I don't need to tell people don't do this. Mm-hmm. You know it and either you don't do it or you just said, yeah, that doesn't bother me. And you've drawn a very different line. The problem for many of us is the grayer areas. Sometimes it's not so clear or more often the biggest problem is that we see it, but we don't know what to do. And I'll give an example with sexual harassment. I was at a company and an executive sexually harassed someone in a very black and white way. Mm-hmm. There was no, well, it was a misunderstanding. No, this was cut and dry. And in this case, I thought, well, the company's going to do something about that. I was disappointed when after a few months, they didn't. And that it bothered me that I didn't do more then. But often we see, well, someone's doing something wrong, but I don't want to make waves. I don't want to cause a problem. And this is my peer. This is my coworker. Maybe it's not as cut and dry as sexual harassment, which mm-hmm. thankfully today is we now see it as as egregious as it is. Mm-hmm. But maybe a gray area, oh, this person's doing something that's not quite right, but I don't want to cause a problem. And so we get stuck in these gray areas. And it's important to understand where your ethical lines are and how to deal with these issues when you see them. And one of the things I talk about is it is important that we speak up. Mm-hmm. We unfortunately see all too often a small transgression. And when nothing happens, it gets worse. Yeah. We see that with an off-color joke. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe someone just made a bad judgment in the moment as a one-off and instantly knew like, oh, you know what? Sorry, that that was wrong. But if, if they say just they are perhaps a little sexist or a little racist or something, and they don't think of themselves that way, but crossed a line. Right. And everyone just kind of nervously looks around and maybe gives a little laugh and just says, oh, okay. You know, that's, a that's a thing. But we're not going to do anything. Bob doesn't pick up on that and thinks, oh, I made a joke. No problems, no consequences. Now I'm going to make another joke. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to take it further. Mm -hmm. And we give people that permission. Mm -hmm. We see, to use an analogy on a national scale, when Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia, Mm -hmm. he told his troops, when you go in, listen, if you get any resistance, just pull back. We're not yet ready for conflict. There was no resistance. Mm -hmm. A couple countries sent out condemnations. Mm -hmm in the next few days, oh, that was bad, but that's it. Mm -hmm. And that encouraged him to do more. We see the same thing, by the way, with Putin, who took over Crimea. Yeah. And then we all said, oh, that was bad, but nothing happened. And then we had what happened in Ukraine a few years ago. And now we see troops amassing again. We see this on the individual level when we don't speak up. We certainly see this in U.S. politics as well. But it happens within our companies. And we need to speak up when something violates our own ethical standards. Mm-hmm. Now, not everyone has the same exact places they would draw the line, but most of us are pretty close. Mm-hmm. And if you're afraid of being the lone voice, mm-hmm. what you need to do before you step forth and say, I'm going into the spotlight by myself, talk to other people. 
after that off-card joke was made and you see everyone else kind of look around, but no one says anything, go to those people one-on-one and say, I really wasn't comfortable with that joke Bob made. Were you? I'm thinking of going to say something. If you weren't comfortable, would you come with me? Because Mm -hmm. then you're not one voice. Then you're not out front alone. And so by talking to people individually and coming together, you are a chorus instead of a single voice. But it all comes down to understanding where your ethical lines are and not being afraid to stand up for them. Yeah, it it reminds me in my book, Remarkable Leadership Lessons, I talk about Aiden and Susan. And one of the things was that Susan is an African-American woman. But for years, years, people had been not telling her what she was not doing well. And it got to the point because she was in the project management office, people would say, oh, yeah, I'll get that material to you. Oh, yeah, I'll test that. Oh, yeah, I'll do these things. And then they didn't do it. Well, she internalized that, got very mad about it. And her new boss, Aiden, came in. And what he found was this woman who really didn't understand why she wasn't getting any further, wasn't getting people to cooperate assigned it to, you know, her being female, being a, a person, a person of color, a black woman. And Aiden had to make the decision, was he going to tackle that or not? And so by us talking and working together, we constructed a conversation of doing exactly what you meant in terms of how do you go to the, the leaders, the executives over the people on that team and say, lying isn't a good thing. And when you say you're going to do something and you don't, and you don't let the person know you can't do it, that's lying. And it's unkind to that person. It isn't ethical for you. And is this the kind of company that we want? Exactly. You need to address the problems. Otherwise, they continue to grow. Yeah. So people are going to want to talk to you. They certainly want to go and get this book. I I just can imagine that. You've won a, a number of awards for this particular book. Where can they find you? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can learn more about the book and where to buy it. You can also get in touch with me or follow me on social media. There's a blog with new content coming out every week. There is a free app available on the Android and iPhone stores with a lot of the content from the book. And it just pops up a reminder every day to help keep this top of mind. That's linked from the website. There's also a resources page where I reference other books that you might find helpful, links to free online resources, and a number of free downloads, including that development guide I mentioned earlier for the peer learning. All of this is available at thecareertoolkitbook.com. Thank you so much. And I really want to thank you for all the folks not only listening, but just I'm, I'm sure the students, but everyone else that hears your voice, because I think what you've written in this book and what you talk about is real world application. It's not the, you know, the high level, oh, just, you know, write out a career plan. And then people are so focused on the expertise that you need to be, the industry you need to get into. When so much of navigating a successful career is really about these quote unquote soft skills that nobody wants to talk about. And too many businesses say they're just not relevant to our business in any kind of way. So I really want to thank you and say we appreciate you and I appreciate you for being on this podcast. Thanks for having me on. You got it. All right, guys, you know what I'm going to say. If you liked it, share it. If you don't like it, share it, because I guarantee it will start a conversation that will help you close the gap, whether it's planning your career, navigating leadership, or simply learning how to create the balance in your life that you want to achieve. This podcast will help you do so. And with that, it's a wrap. See ya. That's a wrap. 
And I'm Denise Cooper, and you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend Ivan G. Hall for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or a comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.